about that. Good morning. Gotta be kidding me. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, we're continuing through this series on Mercy Hill, uh, being a cross-centered church and what it means that we would be a church centered on the cross. And this morning we're looking at 1 Corinthians, and we're really going to focus in and hone in on chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and we read verses 18 through the end of chapter 1, so we would get the head start and uh, see kind of where Paul is coming from when he gets to verse 1 of chapter 2. We need to get kind of the context and the background of what he's saying. And the point of this morning of why we would look at this, Paul's famous declaration that he decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, is that this idea of Mercy Hill and being a cross-centered church, we've said that uh, at a church, you want to, you're known for certain things. That there are all sorts of things that a church can be known for. That you can be known as the missions church, or you can be known as the giving church, or you can be known as the Bible-believing church, or the prayer church. And there's other, you know, maybe not so good things that you could be known for as a church. And we said that we want to be church, uh, be a church that is known for the cross. Now, when it comes to something you want to be known for, it's true that you have to know the thing you want to be known for. That maybe sounds more complicated than it ought to be. Uh, just an example. If you're a contractor and you want to be known as a great contractor, it just makes sense that you would have to know contracting, right? Otherwise, how in the world are you going to be known to be a good contractor? You could have all kinds of strategies of, you know, we're going to have this great media blitz and advertising. We're going to have the best website possible. We're going to have, you know, really great tools and equipment. And we're going to make sure that everybody we hire is really lovable and personable. And, and that's all great. But if you're really bad at contracting, there's no way that any of those other things are going to help you. You might be known as the nice contractor, but not the very good contractor. You might be known as the very tech-savvy contractor, but not the good contractor. So it just makes sense to us that if you want to be known for something, you have to know it. So as a church, we could have this whole series of we want to be known for the cross and being cross-centered, but if we go out and we focus on all sorts of other things and push the cross to the background by what we say and what we do, then it totally negates everything that we've already said we want to be about. And we may be known for all of these other things and say, no, no, we really want to be known for this other thing. We want to be known for the cross. And people say, well, I don't ever hear, hear you talk about the cross. I don't ever hear you focus on the cross. So this morning we want to say, what should we know as a church? We should know nothing but the cross. First Corinthians chapter 2. I just want to read verses 1 through 5 again to you so we have it in front of us as we look to it. Verse 1, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." What we're going to do this morning is I want to ask two questions about how Paul came to the Corinthians, because that's how he starts verse 1. He says, I, when I came to you, he has this emphasis on when I came to you, I came in a certain way, and we want to ask, what was that, and, and why was that? So we're going to ask, how did Paul come, and then why did he come that way? And after we ask those two questions, I just want to make four 
uh, fairly quick observations about what does it mean for us as individuals and us as a church to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let's get going. Question number one, how did Paul come? In verse one, he says, I did not come. He starts by saying how he did not come. He says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That phrase, the lofty speech, literally means high-sounding high words. So really big, impressive vocabulary kind of words. And then he says wisdom, which sounds kind of generic, like, Paul, were you intentionally stupid? Uh, no, that's not what he means, because he goes on to say in verse 4, he means plausible words of wisdom, and then verse 5 is really where he captures it, the wisdom of men. So in Paul's day, there were people that we would call orators, and what they did was they traveled around from city to city, and they were professional speech givers. They were well-versed in what was called rhetoric, the art of communication. And so what they would do is they would come to a city, and they could be on any sort of topic. It could be art or science or politics, whatever the case was. And they would come to a town, and they would set up a meeting, and people would pay to come listen to this person basically give a speech or a lecture on this given topic. And these people were phenomenal at it, and there were people that were famous for their speech giving. And now listen, this was kind of like entertainment in that day because they didn't have, you know, movie theaters and television and stuff like that. So all kind of people would come and hear these great speech makers. And there were rules about this, and there were schools for this that you could be taught how to be an orator. And now Paul says when he comes, he's not coming that way. And he intentionally doesn't come that way. And that was so strange because if you were going to come to a place you needed to come this way, right? The culture said, if you want to get a hearing, if you want people to come, then you have to obey these rules. You have to come in this way. You have to play by their game. And Paul says, I didn't come that way. I didn't come with lofty speech and words of plausible wisdom or the wisdom of men. He says, that's not how I came. And it was on purpose and it was intentional. Instead, he says he came, verse 3, in weakness and in fear, and much trembling. Now, that sounds as strange to us as it did back then. Weakness, fear, and trembling weren't, you know, something that was applauded back in the day. And so this isn't the guy that you and I would choose, maybe, to be the spokesman for our new religion, right? You're not, you don't get the lineup and go, give me the guy that's weak, fearful, and trembling, and he's the guy we're going to send out into the Roman Empire to all these mega cities and proclaim this message and try to convert people to this new message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's not the corporate headhunter that you sent out to go gather the best talent. But he says, that's how I came to you. I came to you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And he doesn't elaborate a whole lot on what he means by that, but it's obvious that the Corinthians would have known. When he says this, they would have said, yeah, yeah, that, that describes how Paul came to us. And we get a couple clues of what he maybe meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10. And Paul writes this, he says, For they, and he's talking about the false apostles, they say his, that is Paul's, letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. His bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Now he's a good writer, we won't deny that. His letters are weighty and strong, but when the guy shows up, you're like, there's no way this is the guy who wrote that letter. He's weak, and his speech is of no account. And if you read chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, Paul doesn't really go out of his way to argue against that. Like, no, no, I really am strong and impressive. He just kind of goes on. He says, maybe that does describe me. 
Maybe that would be a fair assessment, that my bodily presence is weak and my speech is of no account. Maybe I am with you in that kind of weakness. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians. And then when it comes to the fear and trembling, you can read some Bible commentators who will try to argue that what, this, what Paul's talking about is that this was a kind of weight he felt for his message. You know, he's talking about salvation and eternity. He's talking about the glory of God and salvation in Christ and eternity and where people are going to spend it. And so there are some people who say that what Paul's really saying here about fear and trembling is that you know, he's trembling with the seriousness of what he's doing. Maybe. Uh, there's really nothing in the text to support that. But actually, if you go back to Acts chapter 18, where Paul is in Corinth and Luke's recording what happened, you have this instance where Paul's been in the city a while, and it says that in the night, the Lord came to him, this is Acts 18 verse 9, and says, the Lord came to him and said, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. It's easy to forget that the Apostle Paul was a human being just like us. And if you think about the Apostle Paul's career up to this point, he's been run out of towns. He's been beat up. He's been thrown in jail. He's been tortured. Right? There are all kinds of people everywhere that want to kill him, that hate the message that he's preaching and want him to stop. And they think the only way we can get this guy to stop, we can't threaten him, we can't beat him up enough, we're going to have to kill him. And Paul is living in this constant state of being hunted, being hated for the things that he's saying. And it would be totally understandable for us to say, Paul comes into Corinth and he thinks, it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. I'm going to get up. There's going to be a couple, maybe a handful of people who respond to this. And the whole rest of the city is going to riot and want to kill me. And God says, don't be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. Because I have many people in this city. He says he was weak. He was fearful. And he was trembling. But even in his fear and his weakness, he still says, look in verse 4, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power which is crazy. He says, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling and at the same time in demonstration of the spirit and of power. What is he talking about? What's this demonstration of the spirit and of power? This mention of the spirit in verse four is the first mention of the spirit in the book of 1 Corinthians. And then Paul spends the rest of chapter two talking about spiritual wisdom. He says in verse 9, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Then, notice verse 10, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So, for me, growing up, when I used to read this verse, when I first became a Christian, was reading through the Bible, I read, Demonstration of the Spirit and of Power, and you know what I thought? I thought miracles. I thought something really impressive and flashy and supernatural that Paul's out there, you know, he's just like waving his hand and people are just falling out or, you know, he's got this whole line of sick people. He just goes, ma, you're all healed. And, and everyone is just astonished that Paul can do these things or he's casting out demons or anything that gets people wowed and say, man, this guy has power. He must be from God. We should listen to him. That's what I always thought. But then when you go read Acts chapter 18, Paul was in Corinth for over a year and a half. And what's really amazing about Acts chapter 18 is what Luke does not mention, a single miracle. Acts chapter 18 does not rec record a single exorcism, a single casting out of a demon, or a single miracle, a single healing. It doesn't mean he didn't do them. 
but Luke doesn't record any of them. Instead, what Luke chooses to record is that day after day after day, what's Paul doing? He's preaching, he's teaching, he's speaking. He's doing something that you and I would consider very ordinary. And yet that's what he says is the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why would he say that? This is one of the reasons why we read chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Because Paul's conception of salvation is not something like you walked an aisle, you repeated some words, and you signed a card. Paul's conception of salvation is that the God of the universe called you, chose you, brought you to himself, redeemed you by the blood of his son, gave you new birth, reconciled you to himself. He intentionally goes after the people that are not super smart, not super strong, says God chose what is low and despised, this is verse 28, in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I will tell you that in my own life, there were a lot of years, and maybe this is why I read verse 4 of chapter 2 this way, that I didn't think of my salvation in that kind of a supernatural way. I thought of it of, you know, there was a time where, you know, I was convicted, and I, I did this, and I prayed this prayer, and this happened, and it was, you know, it was, it was wonderful, it was life-changing, but I didn't think about it so much in terms of this is what God did, and that this was the most unbelievable event that could have ever happened to me. That this wasn't a kid who was sort of bad, kind of heading in the wrong direction, and he decided to turn around. That was not salvation. Salvation was, I was dead, and God raised me to life. I was a child of wrath, and God made me a child of the king. I was a sinner who loved sin, and God gave me a new heart to where now I love him and want to follow him. That's the demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's the more impressive thing, is that Paul would show up into a city full of people who think the message of the cross is weak and foolish. And this little man, this little Jewish man comes into town who's weak and fearful and trembling, and he starts getting up and sharing a message about a crucified Jew. And you know what happens? People start following him. People start believing it. People start leaving idols, leaving their culture, and following after this Jesus, this crucified Messiah. And a message that the whole world is shouting, foolishness, weakness. A group of people go, no, wisdom, power. This is God. This is truth. And Paul says the fact that that happens is the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that's how he came. He came weak. He came fearful. He came not playing by the rules of rhetoric and the people of his day. He came in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, why would he come that way? Question number two, why would Paul come that way? We can think of other ways he may have come that would have maybe gotten him a better reception. Maybe a little less persecution. Maybe a little less beating up and getting thrown in prison. Why would Paul come this way. We don't have to wonder. Paul tells us in verse 5. He says, I came this way. I did all of this the way I did it so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul understood that your faith will never do you any more good than the object that your faith is in. I'll say that again. Your faith will never do you any more good than the object that your faith is in. Imagine in two scenarios. The first scenario is you have two mountains, two huge mountains, big, deep valley in between them. And you have a person who needs to get from one side, one mountain to the other. And spanning this two mountains are this rickety old rope bridge. The man says, I have all faith that I'm going to get to the other side. I'm 100% confident, zero doubt that this bridge is going to hold me. I'm going to get to the other side. And so he begins to walk very confidently, self-assured. I'm going to make it to the other side. He gets halfway across, the bridge snaps, and he falls to his death. Second scenario, same mountains, same valley. Now you have another man who needs to get to the other side. The bridge is not rope. It's concrete and steel, solid as a rock. But this man is really terrified of heights, and I can sympathize with him. He says, I don't want to fall to my death. I don't want to plummet to my death today. But I have to get to the other side. So, weak, trembling, very little faith, he begins to take a step out. And it holds, takes another step. He takes another step, and another step, and before he knows it, he's on the other side, and he's made it. And if we were to ask, which of these two had more faith, we would say, oh, the first guy, all day long, had total faith that he was going to get to the other side. But it wasn't the strength of their faith that got them across to the other side. It was the strength of the bridge. You can have all faith in the wrong object, and it will do you zero good. You can have small, timid, weak little faith in the right object, and you'll make it to the other side. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that if their faith is just in the wisdom of men, if he can come in, and listen, Paul could have done it. There are secular historians that admit they're not Christians, they have no bias in this, they will admit Paul was likely one of the smartest, if not the most intelligent man alive in his day. The guy was a genius. If he had wanted to, he could have come into town and he could have blown the other guys out of the water. He could have played by their rules. He could have played their game and he could have come in and just decimated them. He could have wowed people with his intellect and his genius. But he says, if I had done that, your faith would not have been in the power of God. It would have been in the wisdom of man. And all it would have taken was another person to come to town who sounded maybe a little bit better, maybe said things in a slightly different way, and you'd have gone to them. And it wouldn't matter how strong your faith is, if it was in the wrong object, no good. It wouldn't do you a single bit of good. And Paul says, I didn't want that for you. I wanted your faith to be unshakable. I wanted your faith to be unstoppable. I wanted your faith to be in something that was so strong and so powerful and so solid that it wouldn't matter exactly how strong your faith was. It's in the right object. Therefore, you'll never fall. So they could go to bed. They could go to an executioner and have total confidence that Jesus Christ and him crucified was all of their hope and all of their joy and all of their peace and all of their life. And that's what they needed. That's what we need. And that's why Paul comes the way he does. He doesn't want them to be shaky. He wants them to be solid. He wants their faith to be unstoppable. So he comes in weakness and fear and trembling. He comes in demonstration of the spirit of power because of where he wants their faith to be. 
And this only happens if Paul preaches Christ and him crucified. This only happens if Paul comes in weakness and not with the wisdom and the impressiveness of man. And so that's why he has to come this way, bearing a message that most of the world will reject as foolishness and weakness. And he knows that. But there will be some that God will call and they will not see it that way. And that Jesus will instead be to them, as verse 30 says of chapter 1, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus becomes everything we need and everything we ever wanted. And Paul says it's because of that, because that's my goal, because that's the end that I want to happen. That's why I'm going to come the way I'm going to come. It's why I'm going to say the things I'm going to say. It's why I'm going to be the way I'm going to be. So you would never be tempted and want to say, my faith's in Paul, my faith's in Peter. No, you would say, my faith is in Christ and in him alone. And he would be the one that would hold you and sustain you through everything that you have to deal with. Now, two questions. How did Paul come? Why did he come that way? Now, let's make four quick observations about what does it mean to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. First observation, knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified means putting Christ and the cross at the center of everything. When Paul says, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, it doesn't mean that he had one sermon that he preached every day for almost two years. It means that he took every single thing and brought it back to the cross. Imagine the Christian life like a giant web And at the center of that web is the cross. And you touch the cross and it reverberates out to every single strand and every single thing. Everything's connected back to the cross. It all traces back to the cross. It gets its strength. It gets its uh, sustaining from the cross. Now you take the cross out. What happens to the web? It collapses. You take the cross, you take the center out, and the whole web just falls. And so Paul knows the cross has to be the center. And then from that, spanning out into all of life, The cross applies to everything. And we know that this is how Paul thinks because he's going to spend the next 14 or so chapters fleshing out what it means to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'd give you a friendly challenge this week to take the book of 1 Corinthians, read it from chapter 2 on, and try to figure out how does every scenario and every issue that Paul brings up, how is it a failure to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Because I would argue that's what it is. Every sin that the Corinthians are dealing with, every issue in their church is a failure to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'll go ahead and do the first one with you. Chapter 3 is about divisions in the church. There are people saying, we follow Apollos, we follow Paul, and there's bickering going on among these Christians about whose favorite you know, preacher is the best. And Paul says, you've forgotten. You've forgotten Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because if you look at verse 11, he says... For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He points them back and says, you've forgotten what the foundation of all this is. It's not Paul. It's not Apollos. It's not Peter. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And because you forgot that, you moved off and you started giving this allegiance to this teacher, this Bible preacher, or this author. And that's why you have divisiveness. So how do you fix it? You go back. You remember Jesus Christ and him crucified, that he's the foundation of everything. And if we're in Christ, we're all on that one foundation. There's no division on that foundation. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. 
And because of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we're all together in this. There should be no division. So Paul's answer to division in the church is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you can take that and you can run it throughout the whole rest of the letter. That every situation, every problem is them failing to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And everything we do as a church, every sermon, every lesson, every small group meeting, every conversation over lunch is really just us fleshing out and discovering what does it mean that Jesus Christ and him crucified in all of my life? How is the cross at the center of my marriage? What does that look like? What is the cross at the center of my finances? What does that look like? The cross at the center of my friendships and relationships, the center of my job, the center of my home, the center of all my hopes and dreams. Everything we do as a church is just tracing from that center of that web, that cross, and pulling a strand and saying, how is Jesus Christ and him crucified, how does it play out into this area? And that's all we're doing. And that's the great challenge and the great journey of the Christian life is staying centered on the cross and finding that the cross is not this one-dimensional thing, but it's like a jewel that you turn it every which way and light hits it a different way and it applies in countless different ways. And so, knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified means putting Christ and the cross at the center of everything. Second observation, knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified is a decision. It's a decision. Don't run past verse 2 where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I take that to mean that at the very least, Paul was tempted to know something else. Right? If you have to make a decision, there are other decisions you could have made. In just a little while, you're going to make a decision about where to eat lunch. Some of you have already been making that decision as we speak. And the whole point of making a decision about where to go to lunch is because you have options. You have other things you could, you could go here or you could go here. So when Paul says, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, it means there are other things he could have known. And he said, I'm not going to. I'm only going to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. He could have been tempted to go that route of human wisdom and relied on himself. He says, I'm not going to do that. So this word decided, uh, in the New American Standard, it's determined. In the NIV, it's uh, resolved. It's the word in the original language for judge. To you know, take a case, weigh the evidence, and make a decision. And so as we've said, Paul has an end in mind that their faith would be in Christ alone and not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so he says, that's why I'm coming the way I'm coming. He takes all of that and he says, so I'm gotta, I've got a decision to make. As he's walking into Corinth, he's got a decision to make. Am I going to know Christ and him crucified and that only? Or am I going to know something else? Am I going to try to bring in something else that makes this message a little bit more palatable, a little bit more enticing to the people? He says, I decided, I made a determination, I resolved that I was not going to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this was a decision that Paul had to make every time he opened his mouth. It wasn't just a decision he had to make that first day he walked into the city. And for you as an individual and for us as a church, the decision to be centered on the cross is not just a decision to be made during this four or five week series. It's a decision and a determination that you will have to make as a person, as a family, as a church, every day, every service, every Sunday, every time you open your mouth, every time you serve, every time you go on a mission trip, it will be a decision and a determination. Am I going to know anything other than Jesus Christ and him crucified? And let's resolve today, tomorrow when we wake up, Tuesday when we wake up, 
that we will know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's a decision. Number three, knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified is opposed to human means of persuasion and manipulation. Knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified is opposed to human means of persuasion and manipulation. If you look at verse 17 of chapter 1, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says, There is a way that I could have come with words of eloquent wisdom. And maybe I could have convinced you. Maybe I could have swayed you by my rhetorical brilliance. But that would have emptied the cross of its power. And what Paul is referring to here is reducing salvation and the presentation of the gospel to something that's technique or skill. And sadly, there have been lots of preachers and lots of churches that have reduced conversion, salvation in Christ to a technique or a skill. That if we just get the, right, the lights just right, if we get the music just right, we paste the songs in just the right order, we get the right flow and the dynamics, we play with the volume in just the right way, if we tell the right stories that get people really emotional, get them all worked up, if we put the lights at just the right level and get this kind of subdued mood, and if we can say the right things to convince people of what they need to do and we can set it up in such a right way, then they'll come. And if you don't believe me, there are literally hundreds and thousands of churches this morning that are treating salvation in Christ like a technique, like it's a skill. And Paul says that empties the cross of its power because you don't need the Holy Spirit for it. If it's just about lighting, if it's just about music, if it's just about saying the right things in the right order in the right way, you don't need the Holy Spirit for that. And there are sermons that are being preached. There are churches that are gathering that could function just as well whether God showed up or not. And I don't want to be a church like that. I don't want to be part of a church like that. That we could function just fine with God or without Him. The Holy Spirit shows up, yeah, that's great. But if not, we still got this. That is emptying the cross of its power. And that is failing at what matters most. Because success for a church is not getting a whole bunch of people in a room. It's not getting a whole bunch of money together. The world can do that. You know, next week we could say, we're going to give away a car. And I bet you we would fill this place out. Fire codes would be breaking all over here. But that wouldn't be the power of the cross. That wouldn't be glorifying to God. And so knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified is a determination that we're not going to rely on skill and technique, but we're going to put ourselves in a position that says, Lord, if you come and you bless this, then it will succeed and it will matter for all of eternity. But if not, everything we've done is in vain. And I will tell you that that is the church that God loves to come and bless. That's the church that God loves to show up and do incredible things at. Because that's a church where no one's going to boast in themselves, but the one who boasts will boast in the Lord. 
Last observation, number four. Knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified is something for all believers and not just the Apostle Paul. It would be possible for you to get to this point and say, well, that's all great and well and good that Paul says this is how he came. But this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. This is the famous missionary and evangelist and church planner, Paul. I'm just an average person. I'm not an apostle. I'm not Paul. That's great for him. That's great for pastors. That's great if, you know, Mike and the other pastors and elders, if, that, if they want to do that, great. Man, we'll applaud it. But how is that something that I really need to do? And I can prove to you that Paul intended for you to do this. If you look, two verses, chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And he says, that's why I sent you, Timothy, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So he writes this letter, he sends it with Timothy, and his whole purpose in that is to remind them of his ways in Christ. And that first and primary of his ways in Christ was saying, I'm not going to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then chapter 11, verse 1, Paul couldn't be any more plain. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do what I do. Copy me. And so Paul's intention for the Corinthians was, I want to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I want you to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so that is the Spirit's intention for each and every one of us today. Now, for a church to be centered on the cross, that means that its people have to be centered on the cross. Because Celebration Baptist Church is not this building, it's not just the pastors, it's you. It's each and every single one of you. And so, if we're going to be a church that is centered on the cross, there's a decision that you have to make. It's a decision that Paul had to make. Are you going to be a person that is centered on the cross? Are you going to be a person that decides, I'm going to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? It may look like foolishness and weakness to everybody around me. But I have seen that this is the wisdom and the power of God. You may say, I'd love to do that, but I, my faith is so weak. I'm so new at this, I don't know how I could do this. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of your Christ. And He has all power. Did you notice what it said? It didn't say that Christ has the power of God. It says He is the power of God. Jesus Christ is the power of God. And if your faith is in Him, you will be unshakable. Not because your faith is so great and so admirable, but because Christ is the one keeping you. It is certainly likely that there are some of you here that, for you, the cross has always seemed kind of foolish. Sort of like a, a myth, a kind of a legend. It's, it's a good story for kids. It's a good story for people who need that sort of emotional help, but really, don't buy it that much. And it may be that today, for the first time in your life, your eyes start to open and you say, it's not foolishness, it's not weakness, this is the power of God, this is the strength and the wisdom of God that, that we would be 
in our sin, trapped. And that God being just and being holy, needing to judge sin like we looked at last week, he can't just sweep it away. He can't just overlook it. He's got to do something about it. But because of his great love with which he loved us, he sent his son, his perfect only son, God in the flesh, who would live the most perfect life, who would not fail for a millisecond to do everything that God had commanded him to do. And then that son, totally perfect, without sin, would be killed on a cross for you and for me. That he would go as a Passover lamb, as an atoning sacrifice in the place of sinners, God would make him become sin who knew no sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in him. That we could be forgiven and freed that no longer would we be at war with this God that we've offended and rebelled against, but we would be reconciled to him, and not just reconciled, but adopted into his family, given all the privileges and the rights of an heir. And that he would give us himself and all things with him. And for those who see it, that is not foolishness, and that is not weakness. It is the greatest message ever conceived. It's the wisdom and the power of God. And if you've never embraced that, I'm praying that you would embrace it this morning. That you would embrace Christ as supremely valuable and treasurable. That you would look nowhere else. And that you would put your life at this cross and say, I'm not going anywhere. And that for those of you who do know Christ, it is your decision to make that will determine the future of this church. That by God's grace, are we going to be a people that are centered on Christ and his cross and know nothing else? Or are we going to chase after every little fad, every little thing that comes along, try to get it done some other way? It's a decision for you to make. And I'm praying that we would decide Together, as one church family, we're not going anywhere. We're coming to the cross, and we're going to stay there. Let me pray for us. Father, it is only by your grace and mercy that we are here, that you have called us to yourself in love, that you would send your son to die in our place on a cross. that he would be shamed and beaten and exposed so that we would be redeemed and forgiven and accepted. And it's the greatest message that we have ever heard. And we love it. And it's because of your grace that we love it. And so, God, I'm praying that there are people here who have never seen that as true and beautiful, that they would see it right now. That you would draw them and call them to yourself, and you would give them a new heart and new eyes 
that they would see Jesus as the wisdom and the power of God, and he would become to them wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I'm praying you would do that by your power, and we will give you all the glory for it. And I also pray for the individuals here who, who know you. And for us as a church, that we would determine and resolve today and tomorrow and for the rest of our lives to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it would be our anthem and it would be our banner and we would never leave it. And you would keep us to the day of Christ Jesus. We pray these things in His name and for His glory alone. Amen. I'm going to be here. If you want to talk, if you want to talk more about what you've heard today, I'm here. If you want to know more about Christ, if you want to just come to the altar to be able to pray, you do that. Let's respond as we sing together this morning.